The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents Setting the Record Straight with Pastor Gordon Runyon and friends as they seek to understand and dissect many of the issues plaguing the church today from the pulpit to the pew. Hello, and welcome to another edition of Setting the Record Straight, a podcast of Reconstructionist Radio. My name is Jason Garwood, and I serve as the lead pastor of Colwood Church in Cairo, Michigan. This podcast is meant to be an interactive podcast, so if you have any questions about covenantalism, theonomy, postmillennialism, presuppositional apologetics, or Reformed theology, please do not hesitate to contact us. You can find us on Facebook at both the Setting the Record Straight page or our main page, Reconstructionist Radio. Let's begin. Maybe you have heard this before, maybe not. I was engaged in a riveting conversation with someone recently, and this person retorted, We're New Testament Christians. We're not supposed to love the law of God. I couldn't believe it. For a moment, I thought my interlocutor was merely kidding. Perhaps I missed the sarcasm. As the conversation unfolded, I learned that he was not kidding. This person's asseveration was as serious as a rapturist's enthusiasm during the Blood Moon's fiasco. The conversation ended shortly thereafter. As I recounted my interaction later on, I realized that this person was a dispensationalist. Now, I say this not to poke fun, let's be honest, it is an easy target, but to share with you that I was once a dispensationalist. At several points in my early years, I remember defending this type of tomfoolery. The law of God only condemns us. We must believe the gospel to be saved. Why would you want to impose the law of God? We must only preach the gospel. Why take such an ancient piece of literature and, and try to do something with it today? The Old Testament was then. This is now. And on and on and on we go. That last phrase is a popular sentiment from the anti-theonomy crowd. The Old Testament becomes only a treasure chest of fanciful moral tales that rival Aesop. The moral of the story, then? Conquer your giants like David. Be a good king like so-and-so. Cross the Red Sea of life on dry ground like Moses. Be like Joseph and Abraham, too, while you're at it. Pick yourself up and speak words of affirmation so that you can have your best life now. I think for many evangelicals, they could do without the Old Testament. Sure, there's you know a lot of prophecies about the Messiah who was to come, but is that all the Old Testament is? Just a bunch of stories with moral propensities, with a few apologetical proof texts sprinkled about? That's what I used to think. That was then, this is now, we're New Testament Christians. The way dispensationalism was taught to me was in the same vein of the Schofield, Ryrie, and Walvard tradition. The church, represented in the New Testament, is the great parentheses of history. The Old Testament was put on hold for now, and it won't resume until a future time. What this basically means is that it is the, the, the Old Testament really isn't for you. 
and that it's only for the ethnic Jew in some obscure future, which is to say, don't worry about studying the law of God and how to apply it to all areas of life. Just be moral people and remember the Christmas texts for the Christmas Eve service. Outside of that, don't bother. Now, I don't want to make this a critique of dispensationalism only, but I need to make sure the presuppositional cards are on the table. When you have a theology that chops up the Bible into arbitrary oblivion, you saw off the branch you sit on. Here, here's what I mean. One of the presuppositions of the person who says we aren't to love the law of God is rooted in a capricious, fallacious understanding of covenantalism. Perhaps you've heard this before, or maybe you believed it at one point. I know I did. Here's the belief. Since the law of the Old Testament was then, and this is now, only those commands repeated in the New Testament era apply. Have you heard this before? One example will suffice for now. Show me where the law against bestiality is repeated in the New Testament. And don't pull the hermeneutical gymnastics either. At best, according to this view... God changed his mind. At worst, you've called the Apostle Paul a liar who said that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. At any rate, I have to ask the question given my conversation. Why do evangelicals hate the law of God? Maybe you don't think that they do hate it. Indeed, there are many who don't. In fact, I would argue that many don't belligerently hate the law of God, but they certainly don't think it applies now, and most assuredly we can't impose it on society. I'm not saying that all evangelicals are in this boat, but it seems that the general pulse of many of them is summarily defined in the sentiment, we aren't supposed to love the law of God. To reiterate, I'm not saying that all evangelicals are hostile towards the law and its applicability for today, but since there is no neutrality, if you're not for it, you're against it. At best, there is apathy. At worst, you get the thinking I'm talking about. Don't love it. The question I have then is this. What do you do with the entirety of Psalm 119? Right out the gate, Psalm 119.1 says, Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. David says that we ought to have our eyes quote, fixed on all of God's commandments, end quote, verse 6. David was determined to keep God's statutes in verse 8. Verse 13, he says this, With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. Again in verse 16, I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. David says in verse 31 that we are to cling to God's law. Surely many evangelical antinomians will have a problem with verse 43, and take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for my hope is in your rules. Regarding imposition of law, David says in verse 46, I will also speak of your testimonies before kings and shall not be put to shame. In other words, the United Nations meetings should revolve around applying the Bible to all of life, but that's for a different episode. Oh, and don't forget the continued thought into verse 47. For I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. For good measure, let's go ahead and throw in verse 48. I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. 
Lest we forget the role of the law of God in all societies, the church should feel the same as David does in verse 53. Hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. End quote. In case it hasn't been abundantly clear, for someone to suggest that we aren't supposed to love the law of God, let's make it explicit from verse 97 of Psalm 119. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Now, does the law condemn sinners? Yes. The law is not laid down for the just, but for the unjust, so says First Timothy 1. In other words, the speed limit only condemns its violators. But that is not the only use of the law of God. We'll come back to this shortly. If you are convinced that we shouldn't love the law of God, you literally have to cut out Psalm 119 from your Bible. The longest chapter in Scripture you have to remove, if you think this way. Ah, but, Jason, that was then. This is now. Besides, David was only talking about the Bible. We're supposed to just love the Bible. Well, first, no. He's talking about the all-encompassing nature of God's moral character as revealed in the law of God. He's talking about justice in the world and covenantal order in all societies, from churches to the family and to the state. But, Jason, you're, you're not telling me that we're supposed to love the ceremonial law. Well, let me answer that by asking you a question. Do you love Christ and his substitutionary death? Is he not the fulfillment of all those weak and beggarly ceremonial elements? As Greg Bonson once noted, the ceremonies in the shadows of the temple, priesthood, and accompanying sacrifices are not binding today, but instead they are fulfilled in Christ. We observe the principles behind these things in the law of God by faith in Christ. Christ fulfilled those elements, and because of it, the law of God still applies today. The ceremonial shadows simply terminate on Christ. The New Testament affirms the law of God and gives clarity to it in light of Christ's coming. It doesn't just toss it aside for later. Besides, no serious student of Scripture would dare suggest that we must return to the shadows of the ceremonial law. When discussing the law of God, we have to Keep in mind the Reformed tradition of the threefold aspects of the law. We don't have time to argue over what this person said or that person said. I simply want to point out the common and biblical understanding that the law can be divided up into three main categories, ceremonial, moral, and civil. The ceremonies have all been abrogated and fulfilled in Christ. In principle, we keep that aspect of the law by faith in Christ who was our Passover lamb. Regarding moral law, we understand that the moral law continues to abide into the New Testament era. It has not been repealed. Oftentimes, we summarize the moral law by looking at the Ten Commandments. While many don't believe they apply today, we do. Accompanying those commands are certain case laws that demonstrate what it looks like to receive sanctions for disobedience. The civil magistrate is God's deacon, it's Romans 13, who is called to rule in accordance with God's law. He is to exact justice for violations of the moral law of God. This is where it gets somewhat tricky. When we categorize moral laws, we are simply saying that this is what God expects, regardless of time, place, and culture. These laws, built into God's order in nature, if you will, are simply trans 
cultural. It touches every human everywhere. Theft in America is the same as theft in China. But there are civil sanctions attached to these moral commands that do abide, and there are some civil sanctions that do not abide. Those civil laws that are tied to the land or seed and ceremonies are all abrogated, but the laws tied to the moral law that are civil penalties do abide. They apply to all peoples, all places, and all times. Now, I say all this because there are several uses of the law, and I went ahead and pulled these following uses from chapter 20 of Greg Bonson's book, By This Standard, which was the first book on theonomy I ever read. Bonson lists 10 uses of the law, and I'm going to summarize them here for you. Note that the uses of the law are his, in his words, the comments that follow are mine, though I will quote him a couple of times. The first one, Bonson says, The law declares the character of God and so reveals his glory. End quote. To suggest that we should love the law of God is to suggest that we are to love God's glory. We are to revel in his perfect goodness, kindness, and mercy. Try reading Psalm 119 without feeling You can't. God's perfect character is revealed in the law, and we love him. The second use, Bonson lists, the law displays the demand of God upon our lives as men. To love the law of God is to love to know God and thus know ourselves. It is important for a a creature to know what the creator expects. I would argue that to not love the law of God is to divorce oneself from reality. It's a suppression of truth. It means that we are haphazard about the holiness of God. Third thing, Bonson lists as one of the uses of the law, the law pronounces blessing upon adherence to its demands. We love the law of God because everything is covenantal in nature, which is to say God blesses his people in history through their adherence to this law, to his law. Blessings come to the church that seeks purity in worship and is zealous for the gospel. Curses come to the family who rejects obedience to Christ. We love the law because we love to be blessed by our Heavenly Father, not for our glory, but for His. Bonson lists another use of the law, number four. The law provides a definition of sin. We love the law because we love holiness. When you love holiness, you hate sin. Since the law gives us the parameters for what sin is, indeed it is cosmic treason, to love the law is to take refuge in the holiness of God and forsake sin. Number five, the law exposes infractions and convicts of sin. Bonson writes, The law is more than simply an objective code of right and wrong, by which, if one is interested, he can judge his performance. The law, being spiritual, Romans 7.14, is part of that word of God which is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, so as to pierce deeply into the recesses of man's heart and bring to light his darkest character. The law judges the thoughts and intents of the heart, Hebrews 4.12 and produces a conviction of our sinfulness, for example, Romans 7, 9 to 13, end quote. To love the law isn't just to love the objective standard. It's to love what it does, that is, seeking out sin that lies within the very sin that we hate. Number six, Bonson notes, even more, the law works to incite rebellion in sinful men, end quote. 
Since the law cannot enable us to obey its demands, Bonson argues it does the opposite. It, it provokes the rebel further. Bonson uses in that book the example of a window. The best way to get it broken is to put a sign out front that says not to throw rocks at it. We love the law because we know that without it, we wouldn't see ourselves for who we really are. Number seven, the law condemns all transgression as deserving God's wrath and curse. Loving the law of God means cherishing the holiness of God. Cherishing, cherishing the holiness of God means mortifying our flesh. Mortifying our flesh means seeing just how deeply our sin deserves God's wrath. This provokes gratitude for Christ and his cross, which in turn leads us to repentance. Number eight, Bonson argues the law drives us to Christ for salvation. Any anti-theonomist who would accuse us of teaching salvation by law simply hasn't read Reconstructionist literature, or they are being dishonest. Worse yet, I fear many resort to slander. Anyhow, to love the law is to love how it moves us to Christ, the all-sufficient Savior. Not only do we love getting to our vacation destination, we love seeing signs that show we are near. The law is the sign that points us to Christ. To paraphrase Samuel Bolton, the law sends us to the gospel for justification. The gospel sends us to the law to inquire what is our duty as those now justified. We love the law because it points us to Jesus. Number nine, Bonson says, the law guides the sanctification of the believer. Question for you, dear listener, does the law of God sanctify you? We're not talking perfect you. Paul rules that out in Galatians and Romans altogether. But for those of us who have experienced the good news of Christ in our hearts, the power of the Spirit, we look to the law to see the pattern of our sanctification. The gospel is the power, indeed. The law is the pattern. Leviticus 20, verse 8 says, Keep my statutes and do them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. The law is a benchmark, Bonson said, to see just how we are growing in God's grace. It's a mirror for us to use, lest we become conceited, thinking that our hair looks quite nice without it. Lastly, number 10. The last use of the law that Bonson notes is this. The law also serves to restrain the evil of the unregenerate. I don't know about you, but I appreciate my children being able to play outside without a murderer running free in my backyard. Besides, if he were aggressive, I have options available to me in multiple calibers. But that is besides the point. Christians ought to love the law implanted in our hearts by the Spirit because when men are self-governed by the Holy Spirit, society is stabilized. Unlike our current American situation, the chickens have made a pact with the wolves and now they are wondering why their friends are missing. We love the law because we know just how wicked we would be without regeneration. Now, back to the question at hand. Should Christians love the law of God? The answer, as I have demonstrated, is yes. But we don't love it because it saves. We don't love it because it has the power to sanctify us completely. 
We don't love it because we have a vindictive spirit towards pagans. We don't love it because we're trusting in it. We don't love it because somehow we are superior when we do. We love it because it comes from God. Gobs of preaching today lacks any mention of the law of God. Peddling minutiae about feelings and just believing the gospel more piles up on a congregation like a snowy Michigan interstate car crash. I get it. I really do. I don't want to be a legalist either. But the Pharisees were not wrong because they loved the law of God. They were wrong because they hated the law of God. We need to get another thing clear. Obedience to Christ is not legalism. Grace is powerful, but a grace that leads us to obedience is way more effective in the world. And that's where we're at anymore. The seeker-obsessed, attractional church wants everyone to feel comfortable when even the gospel confronts your comfort. The first word of the gospel announcement from the lips of Jesus was repent. Repent of what? Of having your feelings hurt? Or repent of sinning against the holy, wrathful creator? And how do you know what to repent of? The law explains. Let's set the record straight. Loving the law is not legalism. Obedience to Christ is not legalism. Wanting society to be preserved through obedience to the law is not legalism. It's God's plan for the world. Sure, we're condemned as sinners for being unable to perform its duties, but thanks be to Christ Jesus, whose perfect obedience is credited to our account. But address this issue we must. Now, I mentioned this moments ago, but I want to make sure we're clear on one of the objections. It's often said the Pharisees loved the law of God, and look what Jesus said about them. The reality is the problem with the Pharisees was not their love for the law, but their hatred for it. Instead of following it obediently with circumcised hearts, they crafted their own man-made tradition, autonomy, right, instead of theonomy, and thus they were condemned. And so we ask the question, what's the greater problem in our churches? Is it lawlessness, or is the greater problem our constant feelings of inadequacies that we must constantly be addressed because the pulpits have run dry? Lawlessness is the answer to that question. Perhaps the law of God isn't being preached. And so what should we do? Well, let us renew covenant with God. Love his law as he intends, and watch him bless our efforts in proclaiming the excellencies of his glory. Thanks for listening. Soli Deo Gloria. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete weekly lineup of eight distinct podcasts. Starting on Sunday, setting the record straight with pastors Gordon Runyon, Jason Garwood, and Joseph Randall Spurgeon. Mondays, the Post Mill Report with Nathan F. Conkey. Tuesdays, Acts to the Root with Bojidar Marinov. Wednesdays, The Hellraiser Report with Scott Allen Buss. Thursdays, The War Room with Bill Evans and Jason Sanchez. Fridays, Once Dead, where Christians give testimonies of God's grace upon their lives. And Saturdays, Restoring America One County at a Time Lectures with Joel McDermott. And our new podcast, No Neutrality with various contributors. Please don't forget to subscribe to each individual podcast or 
the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where you will get all of the content we produce, including our free audiobooks. Don't forget to go to reconstructionistradio.com to volunteer as a narrator and to partner with us financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.